You are listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org. We're going to look at some different scriptures in the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to finish in the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at some scriptures and some passages. The theme of the message tonight is Jesus is looking for those who are willing to overcome this world. Jesus is looking for those who are willing to overcome this world. Now, the key word in that sentence is those who are willing. Because Jesus is not going to force you to submit to his word. Jesus is a gentleman. He'll ask you. The Bible says in Revelation 3.20 that he knocks on the door. And he waits to see if you're going to answer. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, the Lord has reached out to you when you were young or a teenager. And you, put the, you, you didn't answer the door. The phone was ringing, but you didn't answer it. And you waited for years until you decided to follow Christ with all your heart. And I know looking back, you wished you had done that sooner. But God has a plan. And so we know that we are to be willing to follow the Lord. Right? There was a man in the Bible that wanted to be healed, and Jesus said, you know, um, we asked Jesus, are you willing? And so God desires that we want more of him. God desires that we follow him with our whole heart. And so tonight, I wanted to look at something a little interesting. The, the city of Ephesus, Paul's relationship to the city of Ephesus and the people there. And Paul writes a letter to the Ephesians to the church there. But interestingly enough, when we finish tonight, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2. Jesus also writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. Jesus writes seven small little um, letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And these are actually churches that were um, during the first century around the the area of modern-day Turkey. And that's where Ephesus is today. You can go there today and you can visit. People take tours there. But everything is not what it used to be. Right? At one time, they worshipped the goddess Diana. It was known as the seventh known wonder of the world at that time, the temple that they built for Diana. And yet we see that come around today. You know, There's a teaching going around today about the mother god and, and different things like that. But it's really old. The Canaanites worshipped goddesses. We see um, the Ephesians worshipped the goddess Diana. So nothing's new under the sun, like Solomon said. It's just something new that's coming back up. They repackage it, and they try to sell it to our youth to worship something other than, um, than Jesus. So I wanted to look at some scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1, um, start with verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So I want to focus on that. We should be holy and without blame before him in love. Did you know we are supposed to live our lives um, holy unto the Lord? Okay, so that means because we live in our flesh, we will fall short or we'll lose our, our attitudes we will argue with our spouses, with our children, but we are to, we're to live a holy life. You know, we are to respond when the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. And I think that's important, whether it's in marriage or in a family with children, to be quick to 
desire peace, to be quick to make things right with our kids. And there's the blessings that come from that. And so no matter what the relationships is, the Bible says if at all possible, we're to live at peace with one another, right? And so we should strive to do that. The Bible tells us here when Paul writes to the Ephesians that we're to be holy and without blame. And so that can, be, that can sound difficult because we fall short. And we quickly respond by saying, well, nobody's perfect. You know, I, I'm not Jesus. And that's true. Okay, but we can confess our sins, right? And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So then what, what prohibits us from asking for forgiveness? Then that's on us. If we don't ask God to forgive us, then that's, that's on us. Then we can't use the excuse, well, I'm not perfect. Because we just fell into that trap. I'm not perfect, so therefore I need to confess my sin, ask God to forgive me. Or if I've offended someone, ask them, will you please forgive me? So Paul gives these people in Ephesians this good word. Now, I picked this verse because it ends by saying, this is um, the end of verse 4, that we should be holy and without blame before him. Now here's the key word here, in love. So the main theme for tonight's message is really love, to love the Lord. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, right? Um, so my son's in high school, and there was a time when, you know, I heard him debating with his friends, you know, who's the best athlete or the best pro basketball player or, you know, these things that go around. And then I heard them use a phrase I hadn't heard before. This was probably last year or something. And they would use the term, who's the goat? And I remember the first time I heard that, I'm like, goat, what are you guys talking about? Like, who's a goat? That, isn't, that makes no sense. And he goes, no, Dad, no, goat, G-O-A-T, is short for greatest of all time. And so young people use that expression, who's the goat in basketball? Who's the goat in football? You know, is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron? Is it Kobe? You know, Kareem, you go on forever. A lot of Lakers there, magic. And so who's the goat? Well, they asked Jesus kind of the same question. They said, of all the scriptures in the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, um, what's the greatest verse? What's the goat? And Jesus actually answered, and he said, the greatest verse of all time is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment, is to love God with everything that we have. And that means we would sacrifice everything we have. And that means we won't hold on to things that he wants to take from us. Not because he wants to take it, but he wants to bless us with something better. And so we see... Paul here encouraging these people. Now go to chapter 2, verse 8. And that says for, of Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ. So in verse 8, Paul gives this church an amazing doctrinal truth that can radically change our lives. For by grace, you have been saved. Now, if you can hold on to that truth, that will bless your life. For by grace, you have been saved. So it's not on you to save you. It's not on you to do works in order to gain God's favor. Jesus saved you when he died on the cross. For by grace, you have been saved. Now, not too long ago, I had someone come up to me, and they showed me a verse that says, um, you know, faith without works is dead. And that's true. That's in the Bible. Okay, but there's two separate things going on here. You're saved by faith 
first. By grace and faith, you're saved first. If you have true faith in God, then like Pastor Chuck would say, true faith produces true works. It'll be a natural fruit. It'll be a natural product of your salvation. But you're saved by faith, by God's grace. The, the thief that was dying on the cross that was hanging next to Jesus, he didn't have time to do works. You know, he just confessed with his mouth. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, praise God, Jesus didn't say, well, too bad, you didn't have more time. You know, if you could come down off the cross, you could run and help some little old lady cross the, the dirt road, and then you could make it. No. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we're saved by faith. But if your faith is real, it'll produce, it'll produce true works. And what, what's the best work that it produces is love. I remember Pastor Chuck Smith was saying a long time ago, he was praying for the gift of healing. He wanted to be able to touch people's lives and heal them physically. And every single time God said no. And he kept praying, no, not giving to you. No, not giving to you. So finally, he basically told Pastor Chuck, um, you know, stop asking. And uh, he says, I've already given you the best gift, and that's the gift of love. And that's the desire that we have. You know, every pastor desires to pastor a church that is known for its love. And we can still do that. Whether you, have, whether you think this church is a church of love, yes, or you don't think it is, or there's cliques in the church, or no one talks to you, you know, we have different opinions and different perspectives of the churches that we go to. But we can still make it happen. So let's not dwell on the past. <laughs> let's be a church of love. Let's all individually decide to choose to love. All right, everybody's on board. Okay. <laughs> We're going to put names of everybody that's here tonight. We're going to call you out. (laughs) Okay, now turn with me in Ephesians 2, chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, well, in in some of the scriptures we're going to look at, we're going to look at some practical things that we can do as Christians. So we're not necessarily going to stop at every verse but we're going to highlight some scriptures of how we can practically live as a Christian in the world today. When Paul visited Ephesians in Acts chapter 19, he had seen some believers there who said they believed in God, but there was something different about these believers. And he asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? Why would Paul ask these believers if they'd received the Holy Spirit? There must have been something maybe different about them or some doctrine or something that they weren't attached to. These were disciples from John. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance to prepare for the Messiah. Jesus was coming. Repent of your sins. Jesus is coming. So they were baptized. But they didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul notices something and says, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So it was cool to have Paul there explain the scriptures. And then the Bible tells us Paul laid hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. And then they were beginning to be used by, in ministry. And then after that, in, in Ephesus, this is all in Ephesus, what we're looking at tonight. Then we see um, crazy miracles begin to happen. It says handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched Paul were being used to go and heal people and cast out demons. Just, just the fact that they were touching. And the Bible tells us God did that. God allowed Paul to be used in such an amazing way. And then there was demons that were being cast out. And so then the religious leaders saw that, and they tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And the demons spoke to them and said, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but we don't know you. And they jumped on those people and chased them out. 
And so it says fear fell in, in Ephesus. But did you know in Ephesus, Paul was there for three years. You know, we go on missionary trips, right? We're planning mission trips this year. And that's a blessing. Okay, but I was kind of put in my place as I was reading the scriptures because um, Paul, when he would go on a missionary trip, he would be someone that would say like, okay, I'm going to go on a missions trip. I'm going to go to New York. Okay. Okay, cool, Paul. That's awesome. Um, So when does your flight leave? No, I'm not. I'm walking. You're going to walk. Yeah, I'm going to walk to New York. And along the way, I'm going to stop and I'm going to plant churches and I could stay for six months or two years, and I'm going to edify whatever God wants to do. And when I get to New York, we're going to do a church plant there. And then I'm going to turn around and come back and then build the churches on the way back, and however long that takes. Did you know Paul, over a 10-year period, he traveled 8,000 miles with no airplanes, no cars, no subways. And if you went with us to India, no rickshaws, you know. Uh, he traveled mostly by foot. And maybe some other forms of a horse or different, a carriage or something. 8,000 miles in a span of about 10 years. So when we say we're going to go on a missions trip for a week, it doesn't seem so daunting now, right? Because we're going to fly in, we're going to fly out, and while we're there, we're going to use cars and transportation. There was no Uber back then or Lyft. But Paul was an amazing guy. And sometimes when Paul was going to a specific area, they told him, you're going to be beaten, you're going to be persecuted. We suggest you don't go there. And Paul's like, that doesn't concern me. Jesus Christ died for me. What does it matter what I go through? He was just an amazing, amazing uh, figure that God used. It's going to be great to meet him in heaven. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner, when Paul's writing this letter, he's already in prison, of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is for all us as Christians, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, here it is again, in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So go back to where it says, bearing with one another in love. So for some of us, we're guilty of half of that sentence. So I mean, you know, you could be saying, I'm in a marriage, and I'm, you know, man, I'm bearing through my marriage, brother, you know. Well, you didn't finish the sentence. Paul says, endeavoring to, uh, I'm sorry, bearing with one another in what? In love. We're commanded to bear with one another, not just to get through the marriage or get through the relationship, but in, in, in love. To look for ways to love each other and to forgive each other. That's something my goal this summer. I have um, my, all my kids are home, come back from college, and, and I already spoke you know, to some of them and said, I want to have a summer, a summer of love <laughs> in the house, right? Minimize, amen. Someone said amen. To minimize the arguing, to minimize the fighting, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, you know, and we're on course. We're not perfect, but we're on course. Bear one another in love. Now, in verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity. So you might be saying, hey, I, I got that one. Been married 20 years you know, I have three kids, you know, they're all okay, but you didn't finish the sentence. Keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. God desires that we be at peace with one another. And that requires us to communicate, right? And to, um, to share each other's burdens in our hearts, to pray for each other. And so we see this edification from Paul. Now, let's jump over to... Chapter 4, verse 25. 
Okay, it gets even better here. Paul, you know, most of these epistles, the first three chapters are usually doctrine. When you read through the epistles, different letters that Paul wrote, um, the first three chapters are doctrine. What do we know in Christ? Who are we in Christ? What can we learn as we're Christians? But then the last couple chapters, and it's pretty consistent as you go through the New Testament, the last couple of chapters are application. Okay, now what do we do now that we know we're a Christian, now that we're in Christ, now that our sins have been forgiven? What does God require of us? So that's why these last couple chapters are so good. So chapter 4, verse 25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Now here we go. We step on some toes here. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Okay, so for you guys... I don't know, I have to speak for myself. When I read the Bible, I have to, I try to challenge myself to convict myself if I'm doing something because I don't want to keep doing it. So many times when I'm reading with my kids or with me, I'll put my kid's name in there or put my name in there. So my son's name's Joshua. So if I'm reading him the Bible before he goes to bed at night, I'll say, Joshua, be angry, but do not sin. Joshua, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then just so he thinks I'm not picking on him, I'll put my name in there. Steve, be angry and do not sin. Steve, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. These, this is good, right? So if you let your anger go for more than a day or two, you're not in line with Scripture. You know. Now, of course, some things happen, and, and, but you can't use that as an excuse, and you shouldn't be using it every week. You know? The Scripture says don't let, don't let the sun go down. So if you want the blessing from God, you're going to follow the scripture so this is this challenges us as christians verse 27 now look also it says nor give place to the devil man what does that mean why is why is paul mentioning the devil in terms of our own christian walk and us trying to live in peace because if you hold on to anger oh man the devil's saying thank you you just made my job easier you know this is easy now I'm reading a book. It's an older book. You've, some of you might have read it by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And, a, and it's an amazing, interesting book of what it would be like of a demon talking to another demon, a head demon talking to a lower demon about the person that he's handling. And they're having a, they're having a communication. And so one demon is telling the higher demon, I'm having a difficult time. The person I'm dealing with is beginning to pray. And so then the higher demon says, okay, I see what you're saying, but you know what? Use the method of distraction. It works perfect. Just distract him with food or distract him with TV or distract him with relationships or even better yet, get him angry and then let him feed his anger. Let him think of all the ways why he's going to take it out on somebody else. And you give place to the devil. We don't want that, right? We don't want to give place to the devil. So this is good instruction. Verse 28 let him who uh, stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Now, this church in Ephesus was known for its labor. So Paul instructs them to be a church that works, and this is a church that is going to have a reputation for working. And so we see the instruction here. When Paul goes to Ephesus, it's a few years later that he writes this letter from prison, around 60 A.D., and then when Jesus, we're going to see in the book of Revelation, when he writes his letter to Revelation, that's written, the vision is given to John around 100. 40 years later, we're going to pick up on how the church is doing, kind of a, 
a report card 40 years later. But here we see Paul in, go to verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this verse 30 was made a radical change in my life. I, that was during Bible college. And I took a course called Lectures in Theology and Ministry. And the whole class, the whole semester, 16-week semester, was on the Holy Spirit. And it was amazing. And one of them was on this scripture. Did you know that when we sin, when we, um, when we go against God's word, that we grieve the Holy Spirit? Do you want to grieve the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is grieved when we disobey God's word. So if you're in a time right now where you're in rebellion to God's word, if you're in a time when you're holding bitterness against someone, if you're at a time when you're not forgiving or you know what you're doing, you can't fool everybody, you can't fool God, then as of right now, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved by your behavior, by your actions, by your attitude. He's grieved right now. Is that okay with you? Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's perfect, beautiful. You couldn't, couldn't have said it any better. Jesus Christ has forgiven us of every sin we've ever committed. So we freely accept that, but then we don't want to give it. So how does that work? Oh, I'll for, you know, forgive me, Lord, of all my sins. I'm a sinner. I'll take it, but I know that person's hurt me, and that person, I'm mad at that person. How, do we, how does that work? We don't even tell our kids to do that. right? And so Paul is giving us excellent instruction as Christians. Now, I don't want to miss it, so let's go to Revelation chapter 2. So Revelation chapter 2, we see Jesus here writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, the vision is given to John, the disciple, and John is writing this, but these are the words of Jesus. So, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now, the word angel there means to the responsible guardian, which more is the pastor or the leader of the church of Ephesus. Okay, so if you're the pastor, you're the leader of this church, I'm writing this to you. Then he says, these things he says, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is standing here and he's holding seven stars in his right hand. These seven stars are the seven pastors or the seven leaders of the seven churches. Now, why seven? So seven in the Bible is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection, right? There's seven days in a week, uh, God made the whole world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. So in the Bible, we see seven as a number of uh, perfection or completion. So it doesn't mean there's only seven churches. It just, the whole church as a whole is seven, and it represents the completion of the church of Christ. So that's why it says seven. The seven stars are the seven pastors. Now, 
It says, he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So the lampstands are the churches, right? They are, they are lights, they're candles, they're lampstands. They're supposed to burn bright in the world that we live in, the church. And there are seven churches that he's writing to. Now, what's neat about verse 2 is we see Jesus walking in the middle of the churches. So Jesus is concerned about the church. So don't ever believe that when you think, you know, I'm going to stop going to church because I can't find a good church or it just doesn't work for me or people don't like me, they don't talk to me. Well, Jesus knows more than us how churches and people are, and he's still hanging out with the church even in the last days. He's not leaving the church. So if he's not going to leave the church, then we shouldn't, right? So that's good to see. Jesus is hanging out with the seven churches. Verse 2, he says, I know your works. And your labor. So there it is. There's the compliment. Your patience and that you can bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored, labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So they're a church that knows how to work, right? We, we are a church, I believe, that knows how to work because we have to. We have to set up and take down wherever we're traveling. You know, we're like nomads. Calvary Chapel of the Nomads, right? And so we work, praise God. So we're like Ephesus. And are we a church that has patience? This church had patience. Now, it's interesting because the city of Ephesus was on a seaport, and it would import all kinds of stuff. But they, they also imported worship. Did you know they imported the worship of Caesar? So once a year, the citizens of Ephesus had to go and had to claim their allegiance and bow to Caesar. Well, if you're a Christian, what do you do? So many Christians wouldn't bow. They said, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is Lord, and they would be persecuted. And so they endured the persecution in Ephesus. They were willing to say, Jesus is Lord, and they were willing to take the persecution. Would we do that? If the state of California went full-on atheist, like it's on its way, and, uh, and we're marking Christians and we couldn't have Bibles, you know, how many of us would go to jail and be arrested And how many of us would just hide our Bibles and live our normal lives? But this church didn't do that. They had patience. Now, it also says in the end of verse 2, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. So the problem they would have back then is pastors would come through or missionaries and they'd say, you know, I'm so-and-so and and I have a word from the Lord. So how do you know if he really has a word from the Lord? They didn't know. So they, in the church history, they came up with two rules. They said if the person... Um, so you invite them to stay in your home because they claim to be a missionary, a pastor. So they stay in your home. If they stay more than two days, they're not from the Lord. <laughs> they're just trying to get free rent. Okay. The, other, the second rule was if they ask for money, but they don't go out and look for a job, it's not from the Lord. So those are the two rules they had. They had to come up with something. So Jesus is commending the church saying, you're, you guys are really good. You're testing those who are claiming to be of me to see if they really are of me. So he's, he's complimenting the church here in Ephesus. This is good. But you guys know sometimes when you were growing up and talking to your parents, and your parents says, I need to talk to you for a second. And they say, first of all, I want to tell you, you know, you've been cleaning your room, excited about that, washing the dishes, washing the dog. But somehow you get the idea something's coming, like you're in trouble. They're just trying to make you feel good before they hit you with the, the bad news. You know, Jesus is kind of doing that here. So sometimes I substitute teaching the schools here. And almost every time I do this, just to get the kids' attention, it's just a joke I do, and it works every time. I say, okay, guys, listen up. i got to take attendance. Um, I got, but i got good news and i got bad news. 
And then and everybody looks. I go, what, what's the good news? And I said, well, the good news is that I just switched my car insurance to Geico, and I saved a ton of money. I said, because 15 minutes can save you what, you guys? And they're all 15% on car insurance. I said, exactly. I said, everybody knows that. And they go, oh, you know, he's got jokes. The sub's got jokes. And then uh, they said, what's the bad? <laughs> they say, what's the, <laughs> what's the bad news? And I said, well, the bad news is your teacher left you a whole bunch of work, and I got to pass it out. So I start passing it out. <laughs> and so Jesus is kind of doing that. Now, so here comes the bad news. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Oh, great. That you have left your first love. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Now, this is sad because against, this word against, is actually a very confrontational word. It means to oppose and to distribute, like consequences are coming, and it means intensity. So Jesus is standing opposite of you and me. If, we're, if we've left our first love, if we're guilty of this, Jesus is standing face to face with us, opposed to us, and he doesn't want us to get by if we're not going to change our heart into a heart of love. He's opposed to that. He's against it. And it's intense. You know, for guys, if you played football, sometimes you have those football coaches. They get in your face, you know, the old school coaches, and they grab your helmet, and they're spit flying everywhere. It's not necessarily spit flying, but Jesus is in our face right here. And he's saying, I'm not okay with this. And he says, you've left your first love. That means you've forsaken it. You've put it aside. It doesn't say you lost it. So he's not completely saying you're gone. You just, you've, your priorities are all out of whack. And I'm here to set them straight. And there's consequences coming if, if we don't listen. So our first love should be in time, in place, first in order, first of importance. Our love for God, our love for God should be the beginning, the best that we have to offer. That's what God desires for us. There's a quote here I didn't want to miss. It says, Jesus is far more interested, listen to this, in what we do with him than what we do for him. So we can have a Christian resume of all the things I've done for God. In comparison, he doesn't care about that. He wants to know what are you doing with him? How are you spending time with him? He doesn't want a whole list of what you're doing for him. That's nice. But if our priorities are in place, then there's a love relationship that's going on with the Lord. Okay, let's look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. So Jesus is giving us that, hey, remember, number one. So remember is this word to exercise memory, to recollect, to rehearse, to make mention, or to be mindful. So it's an active form of memory. Remember, you know, when couples come in for counseling many times, you know, I like to ask them, um, you know what, before we start, tell me how you guys met. You know, wh- what am I doing by asking that question? Yeah, creating that time when you fell in love. How did you guys meet? And usually there's a funny story behind it or something. You know, well, I didn't really like him, and then he, he, he was stalking me, and, you know, I finally realized, God, he was the one for me. And, uh, so, but there's, it, there's that recollection, that memory of how we met, how we fell in love. And you're hoping it'll spark something. Jesus is saying the same thing. Remember when we first became Christian, when you first became a Christian, when you first made a confession for me? 
Remember that love that you felt and you couldn't hold back anymore and you confessed your sins to me? Remember that? So Jesus is telling us to remember, and this is good. This can be good in a marriage. It can be good in any relationship that started off good. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. And then what does he say? Repent. Man, that's the perfect word. Nothing good in our Christian walk can ever start or continue unless we repent. It has to begin with repentance at some point. And then God will begin to heal. God will begin to work. God desires for us to be humble. Like you come into the room, my kids are arguing or something, and I go, hey, you guys got to stop fighting. You know? And if I'm tired, I'm like, somebody's got to say sorry to somebody or I'm not leaving. So if I can stand here all day or someone can get it over with, then here we say, okay, sorry. Mm, no, that wasn't good enough. <laughs> you kind of have to mean it. You know? And so then we'll talk it through. And then finally, praise God, someone will say, all right, I'm sorry I said those things. And you can feel like a compassion there. That's what, God, that, that's what Jesus is desiring from us, to repent. Remember and to repent. Now, here's the warning, though. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So he's saying, I'm going to take away your church unless you repent. You think you have something good going on, and it's moving, it's working, everything. There's, you're known for your labor. You're known for your patience. You're known for testing the apostles. But I'll come and take all that away. If you're, if you're not going to love me and you're not going to repent, I won't put up with it. And so it's this excellent exhortation for us as Christians to, to put our heart in check with the Lord. But this you have, he says, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So it's believed that these Nicolaitans um, were a form of a priestly line, because Nicole, I guess, is the word for priest, and laity is the people. So it's believed that this priesthood had a, like a, a pride, that they were better than the common person. And that's, there was one thing that God hates, and that's pride. And so Jesus is saying, you, you hate this type of teaching. And Jesus is saying, that's good, so do I. So it's kind of cool how Jesus comes back with one more you know, positive. It is important, too, um, that we confess. That's very important. There was a pastor that I had met, and he, when he was giving advice, um, when my wife and I were going through pre- premarital counseling through the church, it was really good counseling, and, and he said he would often, when couples would come in or having problems, he would usually tell the husband, um, okay, will you pray before we start this session? And he said sometimes the husband would say, well, I don't feel like praying. And then the pastor said that he would say, well, then I don't feel like counseling you. So... If you're not willing to pray and start this off and you're here, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, this is a church. If you're not willing to start your marriage off with prayer, then you're wasting my time. So you can reschedule later or go to a different church that won't make you pray. And so, man, isn't that good when the Lord is, is he's not mad at us. He loves us. He desires for there to be reconciliation and peace. And this is what God is directing John, when he writes this from the words of Jesus, now look at verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. This is the last verse we're looking at today. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the fascinating part of being a Christian, is you can have an ear to hear and not really hear anything. It can go through one ear and it can go out the other. But Jesus is saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pay attention. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, 
which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is cool, the tree of life. So you remember when God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden? There was two trees there. There was the tree of good and evil, and then there was a tree of life. Adam couldn't have, he could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever. He chose the wrong tree. He chose the, the tree of good and evil, him and Eve. And then they were kicked out of the garden. So, you know, like people say, Adam and Eve, they messed it up for all of us. But God is so good, Jesus, he's going to bring that tree of life back. So even though they messed it up for us back then, we're going to get a chance to eat from the tree of life. For those who overcome, for those who repent, remember and repent, and get in the love relationship back in line with Jesus. For those who do that will overcome, and for those who overcome will get to enjoy from the tree of life all over again. And I can't even imagine what that's going to be like, or that's going to taste like, what that's going to look like. That's going to be awesome. And that's the blessing, right? He wants to bless us. He has a reward waiting for us. He's even telling us what it is. Now, lastly, it's for those who do what? For those who overcome. I did want to read a quote I missed here. Jesus tells us that he won't stay around a church that doesn't love him. Jesus tells us that he won't stay around a church that doesn't love him. So this last word we're going to look at is the word overcome. So this is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word called nikeo, and it means to subdue. So we as Christians are supposed to subdue our flesh. It means to conquer the enemy. It means to prevail, to get the victory. To, uh, it means conquest, to have victory over our flesh. Okay. Now what's cool about this word nikeo, when I tell you the other word, it's, you're going to realize what, it, what it's similar to, but it comes from the same Greek word, which is Nike, right? So some, you know, some of you are wearing Nikes. I'm wearing Converse right now. So, but Nike, Nike knew what they were doing when they invented that. Nike means conquest. It means victory for, for the athlete. It was a good slogan that they offered. Okay, but the crazy thing is Nike didn't invent it, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Nike, Jesus said Nike 2,000 years ago in the book of Revelation for the end times. That's the true meaning of Nike. Victory in Jesus Christ. Victory for those who overcome. Victory for those who are willing to repent. Victory for those who are willing to remember where they came from in Christ. Nike is for us who overcome. And then the rewards will come. The blessings will come. And so really the slogan, you know, when they invented that Nike swoosh, it was actually a a college student, a girl Way back, probably in the 60s, they were trying to come up with a slogan, and they were everyone was kind of artists were coming up with stuff and submitting it, and they chose this girl, which was the swoosh, and they gave her like $50 for it. It was like some prize. So then, when it blew, when Nike blew up and all the stock went up, you know, someone they pressured Nike like, you should. She invented the swoosh. You should give her something better than that. So they gave her stock in the company. So I'm sure she's well taken care of, right? But the proper swoosh. I mean, the proper slogan should not be Nike and the swoosh. The proper slogan is Nike, victory, and it should be the cross. That's the proper slogan for Nike. It's the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, Lord. And um, we just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here um, that is not a Christian, maybe you were invited tonight by somebody or you came with a friend or you just kind of walked in. We just don't want you to leave here without being given an opportunity um, to, to accept the cross, to accept what Jesus has done for you. 
Um, we want you to have your sins forgiven. We want you to at least be given a decision to make. That God has been reaching out to you. That God has a plan and a purpose for your life. But you can't know that plan if you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't know that plan if you don't confess your sins to God and let Him forgive you. So we might all be Christians here tonight. I don't know. But as we're praying, if you feel that God has been speaking to your heart and you want your sins to be forgiven, if you're willing, then I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. And I'm going to say a simple prayer for those who raise their hand. But it's going to be a step of faith on your part. He won't force you. But he is inviting you today to join his family. But you have to confess your sin. It shouldn't be hard to do. We are sinners and Jesus is our Savior. So if there's anyone here that wants to receive Christ for the first time, just raise your hand. We're going to say a prayer. Lord, we're thankful and we're grateful for everyone that's here. And I do pray, Lord, for anyone who is struggling or maybe this brought some conviction to someone's heart because their priorities are have been out of line. They have left their first love, and that is you. And they're keeping busy in the church. They're keeping busy even in ministry. But their priorities are off. And, Lord, you gave this message not to condemn. You gave this message for us to remember and to repent. And if that's you, I'm going to say a prayer and just say, just agree with me as I'm praying. Lord, forgive me for having my priorities out of place. I'm a Christian and I love you and I don't want to be out of step. And so cleanse me, Lord. Wash me. Give me the freedom that you offer in your son, Jesus. And help me, Lord, to put you where you're supposed to be first in my life. And let love be the proof of that. So I confess these things to you, Lord. Forgive me. And give me the joy of your salvation and bring peace into my home and into my heart. In Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. We pray you have been blessed by this sermon. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org.